Hi, good evening, uh, good morning, good afternoon. Uh, this is the Cambridge Genomics podcast uh, on the 18th of May 2019. Uh, we are here, uh, Albert Vileja. Hello. And Parth Ivan. Hello. From San Francisco, uh, joining us uh, this evening uh, from, in Cambridge. So we have a really full agenda as usual. And uh, one of the first things that we're going to be talking about today is the Personal Genomics Conference, which happened uh, just uh, a month ago on the 11th and 12th of, um, of April. And so uh, we had quite a few things happening there. And you were one of the uh, co-organizers, right, Manuel? I was one of the co-organizers. I had the opportunity to uh, joined the stage with uh, George Church and uh, uh, quite a few other interesting people such as Catherine Lewis and, and well-known uh, scientists who are uh, interested in the aspects of accessing, sharing, interpreting personal genomes, healthy genomes. Yeah. Um, how much of it was uh, out of curiosity? How much of it was related to direct-to-consumer genomics and how much was more like the science behind personal genomics? So I would say that um, obviously there was quite a lot of uh, personal genomics. I mean, there, there were people from 23 Me and mm -hmm. uh, yeah. some, some other companies, uh, providers. So I think it was... Um, it was a good mix. I don't think there was a sort of predominance of direct-to-consumer. I think it was more to do with, you know, um, how to sort of democratize access or genome data to the to the wider public, and then how to make it useful. Uh, in, uh, in also, how to interpret this from uh, uh, from the consumer's point of view, right? From the consumer's point of view, yeah, I think I think that's a good, great, great description. Yeah. But anyway, um, so thanks, guys, for asking. Uh, should we talk a little bit about some of the latest development that have been happening? For example, I see that with you guys have um, discovered a few interesting findings from Genome Web. I was going to ask, yeah. uh, and also this, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I, I I also saw that you got interviewed by the uh, Genes Unzipped uh, website. Uh, not only you, but also uh, George Church. I was like half, half an episode of the podcast for, for each of us, for each of you. How, how did it go? I think it was uh, a lot of fun, to be honest. <laughs> uh, I certainly learned quite a lot from what George was saying. You know, he was talking about the zero dollar genome. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's uh, a long way to to get to that point, but um, uh, you know, one of the points I, w I I wanted to make, which is quite obvious, is you know, you can have your genome sequence for zero dollars, but then where the real cost is is in sort of interpreting and making sure that you get information that is actionable out of the yeah. data that you get. I guess what you're saying is that. Technically, it's quite cheap now to do uh, some uh, genotyping or or some technology similar to this and get the raw data. But then, even if that goes becomes cheaper and cheaper, uh, close to zero, 
then there's another part, which is what do you do with the raw data to make it something useful, not only for scientists, but also for the for the for the general public, right? Yeah, thanks for asking that. So I think uh, one of the main uh, issues that I find is uh, yeah. the lack of um, standards in the way results are reported, depending mm -hmm. on which company you you use for interpreting genomic results, you're going to get different types of analysis. So there is a lot of heterogeneity in the way genomes are currently being dealt right. with. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, it's a lot easier one when you have phenotypes and that are clearly pathogenic, you are, you are dealing with sick people, but at the moment, when, when you're trying to use genomes for people who are healthy, being able to make that information into something which is clearly actionable and useful, something that you can do, something that you can apply to your lifestyle habits, something that you can do from the point of view of healthcare, is very, very challenging. And a lot of that is not just because of the lack of information that we may have in the understanding of how variants correlate to to specific function or annotations. I think it's also in the way we actually put all of that information from the different databases together and how we actually make use of uh, existing information into trying to sort of make that information available and accessible into in, into the uh, in, into the customers or, or people who, who make those tests. Right, so is that um that's a good summary. Yeah, so so that, that's a good summary. Uh, to add to it, uh, there was also one of the events uh, that was free and open to public. You know, uh, public were invited and uh, to come and attend the event and ask questions to scientists, and then the scientists clarified their concerns. You know. Um, yeah, that, it was okay. a good good in, event for public engagement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. great. Um, so you guys, uh, did you actually go to that to the public lecture then? Yeah. So uh, well, uh, I, it's just a mention, quick mention, so we don't need to discuss about it. But yeah. Yeah. Great. Wonderful. Okay, so uh, then let's move into the other uh, exciting yeah, and yeah. what has happened since our last podcast. So I see sure. that uh, we have been uh, busy trying to understand the latest methods for RNA-seq and, and cancer-targeted therapy. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I mean, lots of things ha have been happening uh, in the last few weeks, but uh, a couple of things uh, interested me most. Uh, um, as I am interested in oncology, as our company is also uh, interested in oncology, uh, especially in personalized uh, uh, cancer therapy uh, using genomic data. So, uh, one of the things is the first one is uh, a new method for RNA sequencing, especially to detect, uh, you know, small RNA fragments and long non-coding RNAs that are otherwise uh, not detected properly by standard RNA sequencing methods. So that's one of the topics. The second topic is um, from the National Cancer Institute's uh, pediatric trial. It's called the uh, MATS trial. 
so um, I'll uh, talk a little bit about it uh, and uh, and its implications for uh, children, children's oncology, yeah, uh, and, and targeted therapy. Okay, so let's start with um, uh, the RNA-seq method. So this new RNA-seq method uh, can detect fragments, fragments of uh, mRNA and long non-coding RNA in plasma. So in other words, you know, uh, we've been discussing about uh, the presence of uh, uh, RNA uh, in plasma, um, and there hasn't been a proper method that could reliably detect uh, fragments uh, from the plasma uh, that would otherwise be, you know, uh, not visible to the standard uh, RNA-seq method, yeah. So they call this method uh, PASFO-RNA-seq. Uh, it's uh, from the research group of Munish uh, Tiwari uh, from the University of uh, Michigan, Professor Munish Tiwari. So uh, this method enzymatically prepares the, the RNA fragments uh, for further sequencing protocols. So, uh, so that's for in the sample preparation stage. So in addition to sample preparation, uh, so they also rely on uh, stringent bioinformatics analysis uh, to, li to limit the detection of false positives. Great. So um, have you had some kind of yeah. uh, biological application uh, where they were able to sort of demonstrate the value of, of this new method? So uh, the biological applications are already out there uh, that are hugely valuable. Uh, so um, they haven't applied to uh, any specific uh, uh, biological application yet uh, because it's uh, clearly known. Uh, for example, in uh, liquid biopsy of cancer patients uh, to personalize uh, cancer treatments uh, uh, using liquid biopsy. Um, so the liquid biopsy is non-invasive, especially for lung cancer patients or or pancreatic cancer patients uh, and so on. So uh, not only for cancer treatment selection, but also for uh, predicting the uh, response rates and also predicting any relapse uh, in patients undergoing cancer treatments. These things are very, very uh, important and useful for this method. So this method can be applied for all those things. Uh, it, it would be a phenomenal uh, improvement of uh, uh, you know, cancer treatments uh, using this method, yeah. Great. So, yeah. So, um, yeah, so a little bit more about it. So this this method is not a replacement of current methods for RNA sequencing or, or, or uh, detecting microRNA or sequencing microRNAs. Uh, this adds to the current uh, sequencing protocols. Uh, so that's a, that's a great advantage. Uh, so. Like, like I said, they call it PASFO-RNA-seq. So what they do is they phosphorylate uh, one end of the RNA, I think, and then uh, so the sequencing method is better be able to detect uh, these phosphorylated fragments. Uh, also, they, they have detected lots of mRNA fragments that are otherwise not visible uh, to the standard uh, RNA-seq methods. So uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll not go deep into it. So you can read more about it uh, from their publications. It's published. Um, um, so they have used uh, standard RNA-seq kits uh, with modified sample preparation methods uh, to make it possible. Yeah, and um, there's another thing that's um, 
you guys have uh, identified as an interesting finding or a development in the technology with the National Cancer Institute, right? Yes, yes, so that, that's also cancer related again. So that's about the targeted therapy uh, of uh, cancer patients, especially children. Um, so the group is called the NCI COG, uh, stands for National Cancer Institute Children's Oncology Group. Um, so that's uh, their trial is called MATCH trial, Molecular Analysis for, target, uh, for Therapy Choice. Um, it's a precision medicine clinical trial for pediatric cancer patients. So they have reported that uh, about 24% 24, uh, 24 of the patients, uh, in other words, one-fourth of the uh, pediatric cancer patients um, could be treated with the current targeted therapy. So, uh, I mean, this might already be known in the sector, but what difference it makes uh, in the industry is that if the trial is complete and if the FDA, if, if the FDA approves, approves this and accepts this, then these medicines could be paid for uh, by you know Medicare and other insurance companies. Yeah, so that would make a huge difference for children um, with cancer. So uh, it, it it has been an extensive study. I think they have only published a part of the results. Uh, they call it uh, interim analysis of the study. Uh, so that's a uh, hugely positive things. Obviously, you know. Um, we have we'd like to treat as many you know cancer patients as possible with targeted therapy and not with chemotherapy so because of uh, side effects and other things so this is a you know good development in that uh, sector so i'm going to ask a question party when i'm mindful of the uh, time lag from being in two different continents sure. um i guess here it's a matter of trying to as the word says target the the, the drugs that already exist in a targeted therapy based on some information that you get from their from their genomics right so okay so uh, the basics first the targeted therapy is uh, any molecule that targets only a certain protein uh, it could be uh, uh, like egfr or it could be um, like a braf and so on um, so the personalization of this therapy is whether the patient has um, any specific mutation and if so, um, uh, if, if, uh, if they have to be selected and treated uh, uh, for, that, for any targeted therapy, you know, for, for a specific therapy. Yeah. Uh, so if they don't have this mutation, they cannot be treated. Uh, so uh, a known example is uh, EGFR and uh, you know, anti-EGFR drugs. Uh, so that's uh, for non-small cell lung cancer. That's a very well-known examples. But uh, we have a large number of uh, examples now, um, including the Linpasa or uh, Olaparib. Yeah. Um, so that that's that's an, uh, another example. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a good it's a good a good way of finding from the genomics or the omics of your of your sample, your blood or other samples see which of the already existing um, uh, drugs in the market that are known to work, which ones are going to work for you, knowing that you have that mutation, and then being able yep. to justify um, using that drug on the patient, right? Exactly, exactly. So uh, most of these drugs have already been tested for adults, uh, but the pediatric cancer uh, uh, mechanism is slightly different, uh, even within the same cancer and same type. It could be different. It, the dosage could be different, and so on. 
the default position is they all go into chemotherapy if, if none of the therapies are applicable which is very bad uh, it's like uh, shooting in the dark and see which one falls um, whereas targeted therapy is quite uh, safe and also side effects are low yeah and and that's it uh, about uh, those two topics and we can move on to the next topic yeah. mm -hmm. great so the next great topic that we be talking about today is the biology of genome conferences in 2019 which happened at the cold spring harbor laboratory and uh, there has been quite a lot of buzz in the twitter sphere on the things that have happened recently uh, and some of the findings that have been exposed and presented at this at this conference so um albert what do you find so yeah the the biology of genomes conference is uh one of the most important ones as the name says to look at the biology of genomes rather than look at the bioinformatics of analyzing data or things like that it's concentrating at the conference is concentrated at uh, talks and posters about what biology do we get from genomics or omics in general. And it's a conference that happens in Cold Spring Harbor, which is just outside of New York. Uh, for us people in uh, Europe, we usually fly to JFK and then take the train to uh, Cold Spring Harbor. And then it's a um, relatively small venue because Cold Spring, Har Spring Harbor is a, it's a research institute during uh, during the year and then it has to host quite a lot of people for this conference. They have a big conference room for it, but um, the facilities, including the, the canteen where people have lunch and dinner, sometimes you can feel that, you know, they're at full capacity during the conference. And I chose a couple of um, talks of the very many that there were over the five days of the conference, a couple that I found interesting. Uh, one related to um, the uh, human expansion of uh, the human race into different uh, continents, and another one which is more related to clinical about polygenic risk scores. Uh, the first one uh, was presented by Javier Mendoza Revilla, and I followed it remotely with, without having to fly and uh, uh, produce too much CO2 into the atmosphere. I just followed it on Twitter and um, uh, read the, the, the different tweets of the people that were live tweeting the conference. And then Javier Mendoza Rivilla talked about the tracing of people uh, in the Southwest Pacific through whole genome sequencing. And they said that the, the expansion started between 40 and, and 65,000 years ago, uh, which is relatively recent if you think about when people are estimating the expansion of the first Homo sapiens, the first group of Homo sapiens took place, which took place from Afri Africa. It was out of Africa expansion. That happened probably uh, between two, five, or ten times uh, um, earlier in time than than this expansion into Oceania. And so this expansion into Oce Oceania, it's probably one of the last ones that happened that we can trace over a very uh, large geographic region. And it took place uh, in the different islands of that part of the world, um, uh, including uh, going from the Southwest, Southeast Asia, um, Taiwan, Vanuatu, places like this. And they did this study based on uh, 317 high coverage whole genome sequence studies 
from people from the Southwest Pacific, Taiwan, Philippines, Solomon Islands, Vanuatu, etc. And what they found is uh, basically um, a, a, a couple of splits along the way, uh, a couple of branches. If you think, if you start from the southeast of Asia, Taiwan, places like this, and you try and think geographically, which is difficult to explain on our podcast, uh, how to expand southwest uh, or southeast, then there would be, according to this model from the whole genomes, a couple of branches that happen first, the, pa the Papuan split and then the Solomon and, and Bismarck split, which happened uh, the, f the former 30,000 years ago and the latter 20,000 years ago. And so uh, even though this covers a very long uh, and large period of time uh, and uh, over uh, so many thousands of years and over such a large uh, fraction of the of the of the continent you can tell all this information from the um, from the whole genome sequencing that they did 300 and so uh, human genomes and so they found some uh, adaptations um, meaning uh, parts of the genome and calling for proteins uh, that would uh, be positively selected um, and some of them related to immune response and potentially some, some of them related to body size and there's different tribes in that part of the world, some are taller, some are shorter and uh, I find it interesting even though this, as I say, has nothing to do with, uh, or not immediately, nothing to do with clinical genomics or application to the clinic. And then the second one, if I may, is about uh, polygenic risk scores. And I chose this one because um, polygenic risk scores have been talked about quite a lot recently. Uh, there's been a few publications and uh, Twitter conversations that I found interesting to, to highlight uh, in the last, I would say, couple of months. And so Arbel Harpak, I hope I pronounced the, the name and surname correctly. Arbel Harpak uh, gave a talk at uh, Biology of Genomes about polygenic risk scores based on essentially uh, the UK Biobank data, meaning mostly white British people. And he tried and uh, analyzed how well would these uh, polygenic risk scores apply across different ancestries. So to summarize, and you guys can correct me or, or add your bits about what a polygenic risk score is, is basically take, taking multiple genes or multiple loci, multiple places in the genome, uh, look at, looking at the genotypes that each of us have in there, and then calculating a score for each of the possible diseases that we may uh, have, that we may suffer during our life. So. Uh, for a genome of a given individual, you can say, based on the several genes, we can tell that this individual, individual has uh, a risk score for this disease that's higher than the average and a risk score for another disease that's lower than the average and quantify it like that. I don't know if that's a good description, uh, Manu and Partivan. I think it's not a bad um, um, definition. I think uh, it's all really to do with relative risk mm -hmm. so there are some ways of quantifying this risk such as using odds ratio or beta values etc so these these computations are mainly uh, when you take a, a reference population 
that has uh, that doesn't show a, a, a high risk, for example, for a particular phenotype, and then another uh, population case positive control uh, population that does have, let's say, high obesity, etc. And so, what you try to do is to uh, understand and assign the scores as to how the different uh, alleles or how the different variations contribute to the likelihood for an individual who express those uh, variants to actually develop or uh, have the, the specific phenotype that we are measuring. Yeah. So I guess what yeah. we could say is that the polygenic risk score is a starting point to say, this is what we have some uh, way of predicting may happen to this individual. It doesn't mean that it has to happen, right? Yeah. So um, I mean, uh, yeah. So uh, I mean, the the great deal of complexity comes in. And um, so uh, when we look at poly polygenic scores, uh, is that um, uh, you know the sheer number of patients that are required for this analysis. You know, so if we are looking at uh, monogenic, we can easily classify the cohort into two groups. You know, th those who have a mutation in a gene X or not. Yeah. So in case of polygenic uh, risk scores, you know, we are looking at multiple genes and then, you know, we are grouping patients uh, having mutations in multiple genes, uh, let's say 10 genes. If a small number of people have a mutation in eight genes or uh, seven genes, would you still classify them in that group or not? So that's uh, one of the issues. Uh, so this has a huge uh, uh, impact on understanding compound heterozygous mutations. Uh, so where multiple heterozygous mutations are uh, related to the disease risk and what subsets uh, are actually uh, you know, co uh, conferring that risk and so on. So yeah. um, over time, when we sequence more and more genome, high depth and uh, when we detect uh, you know, uh, mutations in multiple genes, uh, then we'll be able to actually accurately pinpoint the subset of genes that are uh, definitely linked to uh, diseases and this would be uh, hugely useful for common diseases uh, you know where you know uh, the genetic evidence is uh, not clear in a large group of patients you know yeah yeah so in this talk uh, given by arvel harpak uh, during colspin harbor biology of genomes he says that the study that they presented during the talk was based on uk biobank and that it was performed on 120,000 men plus 120,000 women. They performed GWAS on this cohort of about a quarter of a million people. And then they tested the prediction accuracy, meaning having trained it on uh, 250,000 people or so, they tested the prediction accuracy on a subset of extra people that you knew you knew what they suffered basically you knew their outcome and the accuracy was tested on 20,000 men and 20,000 women separately and they say that they yep. see a, um, a prediction accuracy that differs by sex and that some of these covariates uh, sex or uh, age uh, they say that those matter and as well the population stratification the different uh, ancestry origins of the different individuals um, in this talk, they highlighted that they looked at things like uh, diastolic blood pressure, which is something that is relatively inexpensive to measure on an individual, and yeah. that uh, they also did uh, study BMI, 
and try yeah. and associate it to some other um, uh, covariates like year of schooling, the, the year in which people were at school, and try and see if there was any, um, um, I would say, correlation or bias, depending how you look at it. They also highlight, and this is probably, you know, only, well, mainly tangential, but it's a way of looking at uh, the power of this, this analysis. They also highlight how this uh, correlates um, when they look at siblings, and this is what they call sibgwas, meaning uh, if you compare similar genotypes across, across people that are not related and look at how powerful the prediction is for the diseases they already suffer, and then do the same with siblings, uh, which have much closer genotypes to each other, then you can calculate the relative power of uh, one to the other, essentially. And um, basically, it's more of the same in the sense of what uh, a lot of what we talk about in uh, genomics, uh, the GWAS field, genome-wide association studies, uh, but it's been sort of digested into the polygenic risk scores as a, as a one of the main products of doing GWAS these days. So if you ask uh, someone, why are we doing GWAS? Why are we doing all this genotyping and measuring all, all these uh, physical conditions and uh, diseases of all these people? Well, one way of uh, getting a, a good product out of it is to yeah, I mean the early uh, well, generation of GWAS late studies. Late polygenic. Uh, yeah. Risk scores and be able to say these individuals higher lag again. We're we're across continents, so there's a bit of a lag in the in the uh, the audio. Any yeah. any last words from both of you about the polygenic risk scores? I am, it's it's something that me as part of my company, we are using actually. Uh, we, we And I agree with what you said, that um, mm. we use mainly GWAS data, genome-wide association uh, studies data in order to, to calculate those uh, risk scores. Good. So I just wanted to mention these two uh, different talks about two different topics that happen in the biology of genomes, but as I say, there were several talks over a period of five days. Um, I pulled out the word cloud from uh, someone who looked at the statistics of different talks. And apart from the polygenic risk score uh, concept, there were also quite a few talks about single cell sequencing, small RNAs, um, open chromatin, uh, a talk about uh, tomato genomes, uh, now that we can do genomics on the chip, uh, they've done, uh, they've sequenced about 100 uh, tomato uh, varieties and looked at how they associate with the different traits, with the flesh and uh, acidity and all those things. Uh, projects like these were completely unthinkable uh, so a decade or two ago. Also about beef uh, cattle, uh, different breeds of uh, cattle that will produce beef that uh, has different uh, attributes. I remember when I joined Ensemble at the EBI um, some 20 or 13 years ago, uh, I was actually, my salary came from uh, the first uh, project that was done on the cow genome. And that project was paid by 
some uh, European and American institutions, uh, research institutions, but also with the Texas Beef Association, which is a bunch of Texas farmers that they chipped in and put some money to sequence the cow genome because they thought this would be important for their business. Anyway, a bunch of topics on uh, biology of genomes and uh, very interesting. Yeah. And as I say, you can follow it on Twitter retrospectively. You don't have to fly all the way there to, to follow. That's me. That's my highlights from biology of genomes. Definitely, uh, we might need to. I forgot one of the most uh, important uh, topics uh, for the whole, all of the humans, uh, which is the cannabis reference genome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I saw that. I saw someone had uh, a poster on the cannabis genome using blockchain, which has so many buzzwords in it. It received a lot of attention. Right, so I think it's a kind of time to uh, say goodbye. Yeah. Um, so thank you guys for, for being there. Thank you, Party from the Francisco. And um, well, we need to do this again soon. Yeah. Enjoy San Francisco Party, and we'll welcome you back to Cambridge when you're back. Yeah, I'll be back there in a week's time. Yeah, thank you very much for joining. Thank you. Until Bye. the next episode. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.